0: The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. Pastor Josh kicked off our root series with a message about how God wants to produce lots of good fruit in our lives. And and he used that verse in John fifteen five that says this says, I am the vine and you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. And separated, you can't produce a thing. Pastor Josh talked about how oftentimes we don't have a fruit problem but we have a root problem how how we're not called to plant to produce this fruit on our own but how we're just called to stay put how, how we're called to stay planted and rooted in the things of God that we're when we're planted and rooted in Jesus and his his word and his spirit and his church that God handles the fruit and he produces this fruit in our lives and and why does he produce this fruit like what's the purpose of the fruit in our lives well well it surely it, it is Part of it is to benefit you. Being being planted and rooted in in the things of God and producing fruit in your life, you're going to benefit from that naturally. But I don't think that that's the only reason why God wants us to produce fruit. I think the other reason why God produces fruit in our lives is because he wants to help people. Like, I think God wants the people that God's placed in our lives to benefit and eat of the fruit that, that he's producing. Like, I think that God wants people to eat of the fruit he's producing in our lives and to be able to taste and see that he's good. That, that they would taste his goodness because of what he's doing in our lives. That, that through the fruit that he's producing in us, that people would be pointed back to Jesus. They'd be pointed back to the root. They'd be, they'd be pointed back to him. But I think sometimes if we're not careful that we can allow some things in our lives that maybe get in the way of our fruit quality. Not necessarily that impact our fruit production, but that impact the kind of fruit that we're putting out. Like I was looking at what might impact a a fruit tree and and one of the things that came up was disease. So trees can get sick. So, So maybe you're planted in the things of God really well, but you've got this sickness of bitterness in you and 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 the, the sickness of bitterness is impacting the fruit that God wants to produce in your life. Or <clears throat> excuse me, maybe it is maybe it's climate. Different trees were designed to pr- thrive and produce fruit in different climates. So maybe you're planted in the Word of God really well, and you you know the Word of God, and and you're standing on the Word of God. But maybe you're just planted in the wrong climate. Like maybe you're trying to make this career or this job or this dating relationship happen that, that maybe God's not intending for you and you're going down this path and you're you're declaring the, the word of God and the promises of God and you're trying to stand in faith but there's no fruit taking place. Why? Maybe because you're just planted in the wrong climate. Or maybe it's pruning. Maybe it's pruning. Maybe you're planted in the church um, and you're in a small group and, and and you're attending worship nights and and you're 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 on a serve team and and you're you're actively involved here at Jesus's church, but but you're overextended in all the other areas of your life. Like you're too spread out and there's too much stuff out in your personal life that's, that's eating of your fruit and it's leaving your branches bare and, and maybe you're a little bit burnt out and it's keeping you from thriving the way that God intended you to. Or, or maybe it's the opposite. See, when when fruit is allowed to overpopulate the branches of a fruit tree, it actually impacts the quality of the fruit. And that's what I want to talk about today. What, what's keeping the fruit on your branches? Like, what's keeping people from getting to benefit of the fruit that God's producing in your lives. And I think it's this. I think the main reason that, that there's fruit that goes unused and uneaten in our lives, I think it's just one thing. I think it's apathy. I think it's apathy. What's the definition of apathy? Apathy is this. It's the absence or suppression of passion, emotion, or excitement. A lack of interest in or concern for things that others find moving or exciting. Another way to say it would just be indifference. In other words, apathy is, apathy is simply just not giving a care. It's not giving a care about the things that we should give a care about. In other words, it's a, it's a meh attitude, just a, a meh attitude. I've, I've got some gifts to kind of help explain it today. I think that this is, this is apathy right here. <laughs> meh. Seinfeld. For, we've got another one for all you ladies out there. Little Ron Gosling, You're welcome. Little, little meh. Or for Punky Matheson slash all the State Farm fans, Aaron Rodgers up there. But I think, that, I think that's what apathy is. It, it's not necessarily that you're a bad person or, or that you're not a Christian. I just think we all have some areas in our life where maybe we experience a little bit of indifference. Maybe some things that we should care just a little bit more about, but we don't. So if that's apathy, if that's what we're trying to stay away from, then, then what is it that we're trying to accomplish? Well, it's, it's this. It's empathy. This is, this is the definition of empathy. It's the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. It's being aware of people. So if apathy is not giving a care, then empathy is simply just giving a care. I've got some more gifts to kind of help me out and, and show what this looks like. And I think empathy gets um, a bad rap sometimes. I think a lot of people think that empathy is this. And that's, that's not empathy. I just, I want to encourage you this morning, if you're walking around crying all the time, there, there's something else happening. Like, that's not a good, God, God's not calling us to live these lives in which we're just feeling every feeling that could ever be felt by everybody around us. That's, that's not what empathy is. I, I think empathy is more of this, actually. Oh, look at that little kangaroo petting that dog, wagging the tail over there. I think that, I think, I think that's what empathy is. Empathy is simply just being aware of the needs and emotions of other people. It's, it's simply just giving a care. Let, Let me, let me put it this way. Apathy is me focused and empathy is we focused. If you're taking notes, that'd be a good thing to write down. Apathy is me focused And empathy is we-focused. Apathy is me-focused. Someone possessing apathy lacks interest and concern for others and is only thinking about themselves and what they need. Someone possessing apathy isn't interested in anything that challenges their comfort or possesses a threat to their agenda or self-interest. In other words, at the center of apathy is self-centeredness, the state of being self-absorbed. And in contrast, we have empathy. Empathy is we focus. This is empathy. Someone possessing empathy doesn't disregard their wants or needs, but instead chooses to push them to the side to consider other people. Someone possessing empathy sees how their actions and attitudes might affect those around them, both positively or negatively. They are aware of the feelings and needs that others possess. In other words, empathy at its core is simply just being inclusive to the needs and the feelings of others. What's the word of God say? Well, what, this is what it says in Philippians two four. It says, "Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others." And just to be clear, this morning we're not talking about worldly apathy. I think that's why a lot of us can be a little dismissive to a message like this because we think that apathy is is just laziness or or a lack of self drive. And although that may very well be part of the definition of what apathy is from the world's standards, we're talking about spiritual apathy today. And, and if you take that definition of, of worldly apathy and you change one word, I think we find spiritual apathy. I think spiritual apathy is this. It's a lack of interest in or concern for things that Jesus finds moving or exciting. Do you know what Jesus finds moving or exciting? People. Jesus finds people incredibly exciting. We are called to live a life in which we are actively invested and involved in the lives of people. The fruit that God is producing in our life gets used when we're invested in the lives of people. Here at New Song, we say this, we want to help people know God by activating difference makers. Now, if we're going to be difference makers today, if we're we're going to choose to be difference makers, we're going to have to choose to do more than to just be planted. Because you can be rooted in Jesus and produce fruit all day long, but if, if no one's benefiting from that fruit, are you making a difference? No, you're not. The fruit in our life has to go out and accomplish something. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about why do we deal with this thing called apathy and how do we stand against it? There's a fight in front of us today and it's a fight against apathy. If you're taking notes, the name of the message today is don't let apathy win. We can't let apathy win. So why do we deal with this thing called apathy? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. I think the first one is, is that we're just overstimulated. We're overstimulated. In psychology, overstimulated is when a patient um, experiences too many things and too many of their senses all at one time. And it leaves the patient oftentimes immobilized, which means they can't react to any of the things that they're feeling or hearing or smelling or tasting. And I think sometimes because we're so exposed to so many needs and problems and tragedies in this world that, that we just can become a little bit of spiritually immobilized. Like, I think we feel like we can't make a difference, and so to deal with this, this feeling of helplessness, we, we just kind of sink back into this apathetic state, and just become calloused to the world and to the needs and to the problems in this world. So we're overstimulated. I think, I think the other thing we are is, is we're self-sufficient. I think we experience apathy because we're self-sufficient. What I mean by this is, is we live in a day and age where if you need something, you go buy it, and you don't even have to go to a store anymore. You just Amazon Prime it. So grateful for Amazon Prime. You can just right there at your doorstep. Also, too, we live in a day and age where you need to learn something, you just get on YouTube and figure it out. If, if, if you need to, your car fixed, you just get on Google Maps and you just search up Car Mechanic and look for the five-star review and, and go there. And, and although being self-sufficient isn't a bad thing, I think, I think it, if we're not careful, it leaves us without community. Because we don't rely on anybody and we don't ask for anybody's help and nobody's asking us for help, we can kind of create this little bubble to live in. And a dangerous place to live in is a place without community because, because the only person to worry about at that point is who? It's, it's me. So I think, I think we're self-sufficient. I think that's kind of why we deal with apathy. I think sometimes the, uh, the third one is this. I think we're comfortable. This is a big one that I, I, I want to talk about today is, is I think one of the reasons why we deal with apathy is that we love comfort. It's interesting, if you Google the most Googled verses, if you Google the most Googled verses, it's funny, you have to Google something to find what's most Googled, but if you Google the top Googled verses, the number one is this, it's John three sixteen, which that makes sense. It's the most famous verse of all time, but what's interesting is verse two through four, the, the verses that are Googled the most, the second most, the third most, and the fourth most. The second one is this, it's Jeremiah 29, 11, which is, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. There's nothing wrong with that verse, but I think that we take that verse and and we kind of make that about our comfort a little bit. You know, like we go, man, God's got good things for me. He's got some comfortable things ahead for me, things to prosper and he, not to harm me. Or, or verse 3, the, the third most Googled verse is this. It's, it's Romans 8, It's, for this we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. What's, what's that verse about? I think we kind of make that verse about, listen, I may be going through some discomfort right now, but God's got something comfortable for me on the other side. You know, you, get, get what I'm getting at this morning. Or the fourth most Googled verse is, this is Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Again, not a bad verse. It's not an untrue verse. But who are those verses about? They're about me. They're about me. And and so I don't think there's a problem with comfort. But I think there becomes a problem when comfort becomes our pursuit. Like when our relationship with God becomes more about achieving and getting comfort than it does about people like when like when our prayer life is more about praying for God to remove to remove discomfort and to to give us more comfort and it's it's not as much about other people I think that's when we have a problem because my friends I don't think that we're called to live a comfortable life like when we get to heaven one day We're going to have everything we need. We'll have eternity to live in comfort. And I don't think in between here and now that that God's really, that his goal in life is to make you comfortable. And I'm not saying that he doesn't want to bless you. I'm not saying he doesn't want to take care of you. I'm just saying that maybe God has more for us than just comfort. I think that God's called us to live a life of self-service. I think that God's called us to live a life of a servant, to meet the needs of other people, to love on other people. And I was thinking about that with the posture of a servant. I was thinking about Jesus and, and how he got on his knees to wash the disciples' feet. And I just can't imagine that was a very comfortable position for the king of kings to, to be knelt down before sinners and, and was washing the feet. I don't think it was a very comfortable posture. I I think about Paul. Paul went throughout the whole area and was planting churches everywhere. And so what what did the Romans do? They put him in shackles. I just don't imagine that those shackles were very comfortable. Or I think about Peter. I think about Peter. They they hung him upside down on a cross because he was so passionate about bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. This people that God was trying to reach. He was so passionate about people that, that, that that they killed him for it. I don't think that was very comfortable. My friends, I don't know that we're called to live a life of comfortability. I think think we're called to live a life of making a difference. And if we're going to make a difference, then we're going to have to be a little bit okay with discomfort. We're going to have to be a little bit more comfortable with discomfort. You guys with me this morning? All right, so if that's why we deal with apathy... If that's why we're struggling with apathy and, and, and apathy sneaks its way into our lives, then what do we do about it? Well, in 1 Peter, it says this. 1 Peter 5.8 says that be, to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Everyone say may. may. What I love about that verse is that it shows us that although the attacks of the enemy are not optional, winning is. What I mean by that is, there's a game plan here that that is showing us. Where if we'll do these two things, that we can resist the devil, that, that that we can overcome the things that the enemy's trying to throw at us. The first thing is is to be sober. Well, what's that mean? It just means be aware. So we talked about earlier, we're, we're just going to be aware that maybe one of the things that the enemy is going to try to do to derail my purpose is to derail the things that he's called me to do and making a difference is, is maybe just to try to slip a little apathy in. And so, so we're aware of that, but we don't stop there. We, it goes on and it says to be vigilant. That word vigilant means in the Greek, it means to watch, give strict attention to, to be cautious, and then watch to be active. So, not only are we aware of what the enemy's trying to do, but we're going to actively pursue and protect the areas that God's calling us to make a difference. We're not just going to be aware of the enemy's strategy, but we're going to come up with our own strategy of action and stand in between apathy in these areas of our life that we're going to talk about today. Because I think there's three main areas that God wants to use the fruit he's producing in your life to make the most difference. And to illustrate these three areas, there's a story in the Bible that perfectly illustrates this, and that's the story of Esther. I love the story of Esther. Esther's got everything you could ever want in a story. It's got a little bit of action, it's got some romance, it's got, it's got, it's got some political twists and, and plot twists, and it's got everything you'd want in a good story. And so to give us, to lay the groundwork today, I'm going to tell the story of Esther, but I know for me it can be, if it can be kind of, I can zone out a little bit when someone reads a bunch of scripture off a screen, so I'm going to tell it in story form today, and because I know no one's too old for a good old-fashioned sto- uh, picture story, I've got some pictures for us. So here we go. The book of Esther takes place in the 5th century in a country named Persia under a king named Ahasuerus also known as King Xerxes I. King Xerxes had a right-hand man named Haman. Haman was a bad dude and is the villain of the story, but we'll get to him later. So one day, King Xerxes gets mad at his wife, Queen Vashti, so he gets rid of her and needs a new girl. So 400 of the most beautiful women in the land are riled up to compete in a beauty pageant of sorts to see who will become the new queen. This is where we meet the hero of the story, Esther. Esther is a Jew who's being raised in Persia by her cousin Mordecai. Esther wins the beauty pageant, and is crowned Mrs. Persia, and Xerxes' new queen, now enter Haman. Haman was in love with himself and would walk around the kingdom and expected everyone to bow down to him. Well Mordecai, being a follower of God, wasn't having any of it. Haman didn't like that too much. So he goes to King Xerxes and tricks him into passing a law stating that in a year's time, all the Jewish people would be wiped out and killed. King Xerxes passes the law not knowing that his new beau Esther was a Jew. Dun, dun, dun. Mordecai... Finds out about Haman's plan and goes to Esther and recruits her to go to the king to spare their people, delivering the famous line, maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. Esther sneakily invites Haman to a dinner party at her and Xerxes' house and in a crazy turn of events reveals Haman's plan and identity as a Jew and to King Xerxes and Xerxes didn't like that Haman was trying to take out his new girl and her whole family so he has Haman killed and drafts a new law allowing that all the Jews are able to protect themselves and to take out all of their enemies including Haman's entire family the Jewish people are once again protected and Esther and Mordecai are hailed as heroes the end not that a good story? One of the things I, I love about that story is I think that we can all put ourselves in the shoes of the hero. Like, I think that we can all be Esthers. Like, a- Esther was a nobody. God, God took this somebody, this person that was in obscurity. She, she, there was nothing special about Esther, but, but she allowed God to use her to, to instill some things in her. She, she was obedient to the Lord and the things that he was calling her to do. And so he raises her up to a place where she can make a real significant difference. And we have that option before us today. We can, we can all be Esther's, but there are three areas that if we're going to allow God to make, uh, allow God to use us to make a difference, we're going to have to be protective. We're going to have to set ourselves against apathy in these three areas. And the first area is, is this, it's in ourselves. So if you're taking notes, write this down. I can't let apathy beat me. I can't let apathy beat me. The first place Esther could have chosen to be spiritually apathetic was towards herself. Esther 2, 12 through 13 says this. It says that each young woman's turn came to go in, into the king's, king Xerxes after she had completed 12 months of preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. So it sounds like a 12-month spa day, maybe <laughs> Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. So Esther's taken from her home and brought to the palace, and she's given 12 months to prepare for her audition as queen. And I think it would have been really easy for Esther in this season to just get a little comfortable. Like, I think it would have been really easy for Esther to just kind of settle in this season. And this is why, because because Esther, being a Jewish person in Persia, probably didn't come from very much. Not only that, but, but she was orphaned. She was being raised by her cousins. She didn't have her mother and her father. And so she's brought out of these kind of low circumstances, these sad circumstances. And she's brought to the palace. And, and it says they're given everything they could ever want, like nice food, nice clothes, these lotions, these perfumes. I mean, she's living the life. And not only that, but at that point in time, the 400 women that were selected were immediately considered to be wives of the king, which means that even if they weren't selected to be queen later on, for the rest of their lives, they would have every single thing that they need. And I think it would have been easy for Esther to get a little comfortable in this season. Like, I think it would have been easy for Esther to take this perspective, to go, man, God, look what you've brought me from. You brought me from nothing, and you've, and you've brought me to this place of great provision. God, thank you so much. Praise the Lord that I'm here in this place. It was all Jesus. Well, I guess not Jesus. Jesus wasn't here yet. It was all the Lord. And listen, I think it would have been easy for Esther to then just go, "Well, okay, now I can kind of sit back and settle. I can just kind of relax, and, and God's brought me to this place so that I can just enjoy this life that he's given me. But it says that she didn't. It says she didn't settle. It says that she spent the 12 months preparing And it says that when she walked in before the king, she was prepared. She realized that the 12 months that were in front of her were not a season to settle, but it was a season to soak. It was a season for God to prepare her for her greater purpose. And I I don't know where you're at this morning. It doesn't matter how old you are or young you are, how much money you have or how much money you don't have or, 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 or how old your kids are this morning. I just want to tell you, you have not arrived at your greater purpose yet. Second Corinthians says this, it says he takes us from glory to what? To glory. And I think sometimes if we're not careful, we settle right there in the middle between glories. Like I think we experience this glory, this, this mountaintop experience, this life's never been this good and we just kind of get comfortable in it. And we settle and we lose steam and, and, we, and, we, and we lose passion and we just start to slow down just a little bit. But listen, if we will choose to protect ourselves against apathy, if we'll choose to not let apathy beat ourselves, then listen, what God's going to do in this season, He's going to prepare you. He's going to equip you. He's going to train you for your greater purpose that's coming. And so how how do we do this? How do we fight against apathy? How do we prepare in these seasons? Well, well, we do two things. The first thing we do is we're going to dig. Taking notes, write that down. We're going to dig. We're going to dig into the Word of God. We're going to choose to prepare today for the fight that's coming tomorrow. Like we're going to choose to train today for the battle that's coming ahead. I, I, I think oftentimes, I was thinking about this, may, maybe sometimes the things that we struggle with, like the things that, I wonder if sometimes the, the areas of life that we're struggling or the struggles that we have in our marriage or the struggles that we're having raising our kids or just individually or personally or professionally, I think these things sometimes that we struggle with, I wonder if the Holy Spirit is thinking, hey, listen, I love you, but I was really wanting to prepare you for this yesterday, Like, I wonder if we wake up and and we go, oh, man, I'm in a fight now. I wonder if the Holy Spirit's going, hey, I I wanted you to feel prepared for this, but we just missed it. Like, we just spent a season of comfort just relaxing and settling. So we're going to dig. That's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to dig. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to steward the season. Steward the season. We're going to recognize that every season of life that God has us in, no matter how comfortable or uncomfortable or enjoyable or, or, or how much you hate that season, you're, we're going to spend every season soaking up every single thing that God has for us in that season because we're going to recognize that what God has for us is going to require what he wants to put in us today. I, I, I've seen this in my own, life, when, my own life. When I was in junior high, I started serving in our kids' ministry growing up. It was called JUMP. And we would jump around that 's the name and, and do puppets and lead worship and I was thirteen years old i didn 't necessarily feel called to kids ministry. Um, I was thirteen didn 't really know what a calling was. I, I, I was just serving where I was stationed I was just I was just going to, to to serve where what God had put in front of me and so I started serving in kids ministry and you fast forward a little bit and I um, start leading worship in our high school ministry, and then I go off to college and I feel called to this church called gateway church and so I call uh, somebody that I had met that worked there and I said, hey, is there any openings for a job there? They said, yes, there is. It's to be a kids worker. And so although I knew I was called ultimately to lead worship for adults, I knew that God was calling me into that season. And so so I take this job just to be a kids worker. And and I start serving in the twos and threes class and the fours and fives class and the fifth and sixth grade class. And what I found was that I was actually pretty good at working with kids. And and what I realized was is the reason why I was good at it is because he had already trained me to do that earlier. On, and so God, I was using some of the things that God had instilled in me early on to to minister to the kids that were right in front of me. And so then you, you fast forward a little bit, and, and we move here with Pastor Josh and Sarah to help plant New Song Church. And I'm leading worship for adults, and then and then I find that I'm I'm getting the opportunity to work with our preschool team to develop our curriculum. The curriculum that we used back in our preschool room. Now, now, why was I able to have any input with that? Well, because God had used previous seasons to prepare me for something, for a greater purpose that was ahead. So, so we're going to dig and we're choose not to settle in the season. You guys with me this morning? Yeah. All right. So the, the first area we can't let apathy win is we can't let apathy beat me. The second area is this. I can't let apathy beat my family. I can't let apathy beat my family. The second area the enemy wants apathy to set in is with our family. Esther 2, 5 through 7 says this. It says that in Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Those names are important. We'll get to them later. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadesh, Hadassah, sorry, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. What is this? This is is Mordecai showing us what ownership looks like. Mordecai knew it wasn't anybody else's responsibility to take care of his family but him. When when Esther's parents pass away, when his uncle and aunt pass away, he doesn't wait for someone else to take care of Esther. He takes her in as his own daughter. But he doesn't just stop at that. He he does more. In verse 10 it says this. This is after Esther had been selected to go up to the palace to prepare. It says that Esther had not revealed her people or her family yet. For Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. So she hadn't told anybody that she was of Jewish descent. What's Mordecai doing? He's, He's discipling her. And every day, Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So what's this? It's, it's discipleship. Mordecai could have just provided for Esther, and then when she selected to go to the palace, gone, you know what? Somebody else's responsibility now. I mean, we could raise our kids, and then when they leave for college, just go, okay, well... Somebody else's responsibility now. We could, we could raise our kids to a point where then we, we send them off to school and we go, all right, it's somebody else's responsibility. Now, I think, I think what the enemy would like us to think is that it's the church's responsibility to teach our kids about Jesus. Yeah. And it's not. It's ours. I think, I think the enemy would like us to think that it's the church's responsibility to disciple our spouses. And it's, it's not. And his group, a tribe group, is not going to disciple your spouse like you can and I think the enemy would like us to think that it's the school system's responsibility to train up our kids and to teach them right from wrong. And it's not. It's ours. What we see in the life of, of Mordecai is that he's consistently coming alongside Esther to help her discover her purpose and accomplish her calling. God, God showed me an example of this in, in, in my own life. He showed me that I've only given my son Abel two things. He's, he's three months old. He's super cute. We dedicated him last service. I've only given him two things. Biology would tell me that I've given him half of my DNA. So half of his DNA is mine, half of his DNA comes from his mother. And the second thing that I've given my son, the only other thing I've given my son is his sin nature. The Bible says that the sin nature comes through the seed of the man. So, so the only two things I've given my son are half of his DNA and his sin nature. So that means that everything good about him, like every, every calling, every, every anointing, every equipping, every gift, everything good that's in Abel was put in him by God when he knit him together in Kaylee's womb. So that means it's my job to walk alongside him as he grows up and as he, as he goes out and it's to help him uncover those purposes. It's to help him realize the potential that God's put in him, to help him cultivate those giftings. Does it make sense this morning? Listen, we're we're called to come alongside our family and help them realize the difference that you can make in your family when we choose, when we refuse to let apathy set in, is that we can help them realize the calling and the purposes that God's put on their life. Ephesians 5 says this, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. What's this mean? Well, I know this verse is directed to husbands, but you can put your title in there. If you're a mom, if you're a dad, if you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a friend, this verse is saying that we all have people that we consider family. We all have people that we love, that we consider family, that go out every day with a kingdom, purpose, and mission. And every day they go out to accomplish that purpose and mission, and they come back at the end of the day and they've just got some battle wounds. Like I think they come back at the end of the day just with a little bit of world on them. I think the world tries to cover up their calling by just throwing a little bit of discouragement on them. Or I think, I think the world tries to cover up their calling by throwing some disappointment at them. Or I think the world tries to cover up and derail their calling by throwing temptation at them. And this verse is telling us that it's our responsibility to come alongside them with the word of God and to just begin to wash the world off of them. It's to come alongside our, our spouses and go, honey, listen, I, I, know, I know you're discouraged at your work. And I, I know you don't feel fulfilled, but I just want to remind you today God's ordered your steps and you were called, and you've got everything you need for this season, right? Right now, don't let discouragement get in the way of your calling. What are we doing? We're just, we're just washing them with the water of the word. Yeah. I think God's calling us to go up to our kids and to go, hey, listen, I know you're disappointed, honey. I- I know you didn't make that team or you didn't, you didn't win that game that you were, you were wanting so badly to win. But I just want to remind you, your value is not based on what you produce, but, but you're a child of God. And, and God's got huge plans, so you don't let disappointment stunt your spiritual growth. I think, I think we're called to come alongside our friends and to go, listen, I, I just see a little bit of insecurity on you. And I just want to remind you, listen, you were called and appointed and equipped for whatever you're doing right now. Don't, don't let insecurity, what, what are we doing? We're just, we're just washing them with the water of the word just washing them with the water of the word. and I love that picture of, of washing because it reminds me of bath time. Listen, you don't need to be your family's power washer. <laughs> Like like you don't need to power wash them with the word of God. Like like you, you don't need to be their Holy Spirit or their Jesus. Like your family's got a Holy Spirit and your family's got a Jesus and they're way better at their job than you are. Our responsibility is to come alongside them, to help lift them up, to help realize their purpose and potential and then to help equip and disciple them to accomplish the things which God has put in front of them. And I love that imagery of washing because I think of my son Abel when we when we put him down for bath time it, it it's sweet it's gentle we get the lights just right the water is is warm it's it's a, there's a gentleness to it I'm not saying sometimes he doesn't want a bath <laughs> just the other night we were giving him bath night he was screaming his head off he did not want a bath but but I knew he needed a bath and so sometimes it it's it's not always just cookie cutter it's not always it's not always works out perfectly when we come alongside our family. Sometimes they don't want to hear the truths of God, but that doesn't mean that we don't come alongside them and go, hey, this one our mind, this is what the word of God says. We do it gently. Does that make sense? So we're not gonna let apathy beat our family. Our th- the third thing that we're not gonna we're gonna stand against apathy is this. We're gonna I can't let apathy beat this world. I can't let apathy beat this world. And our story of Esther comes to a close when, when, we, when, we, when Esther finds out about Haman's plans to take out the Jewish people. And she's faced with a crossroads of sorts. See, She could either hide back in, in, in the comfort and the shadows of the palace and do nothing. She could pretend like nothing was taking place and, and hide in the protection of her position and while, while all the Jewish people get taken out. Or she could risk everything. She could risk everything in order to help people. And, and, and the story tells us she does. She was willing to risk everything, her, her, her position, her power, her, her palace, all just to help people. But think about it. Think about it. Esther, I, I really think that if she had done nothing, if she hadn't told anybody about, about Haman's plans, if she hadn't gone to King Xerxes, I think she would have been spared because the only person that knew her secret was Mordecai and he wasn't going to rat on her. So it was a very real option for her to just sink back in the comfort and the protection and, of the palace. But she didn't. She took a step. She was willing to risk everything, her, her power, her position, her, her palace, just to help people. And it's a picture of Jesus for us, that, that Jesus was willing to risk everything. He, he was willing to lay down everything, his, his power, his position, his palace, just to help people, just to help you and me. And, and we're called to do the same. We're called to do the same. I'm going to echo the words of Mordecai today. What if you were made for such a time as this? What if you were made for such a time as this? This year, this time, this generation, that job, that family. What if you were made for such a time as this? There's an old illustration that I heard growing up in in Sunday school that went something like this. It was, what if you walked outside of your house and you realize that your neighbor's house is on fire, wouldn't you do something about it? And, and then, and then the, the illustration goes one step further and it goes, well, what if the whole world was your family and, and this earth was the house and it was on fire? Wouldn't you do something about it? And, and I get the illustration. It's trying to invoke a sense of urgency in us that to remind us that there are people that die and go to hell every day because they don't know Jesus, because no one's told them about Jesus. And I get the illustration, but I just don't think it's very effective. And this is why I don't think it's very effective because we see the whole world and we go, man, I can't change the whole world. Like I I can't reach the whole world for Jesus. So so what do we do? We just kind of cope with that feeling of helplessness and go, I'm I'm not going to reach anybody then. And I've got good news for you. You are not called to reach the whole world. Like that's the capital C church's job. And we partner with the church. We link arms with the church. We make up the capital C church to reach the world. But you're not called to reach the world. You're just called to reach yours. So I ask you again, what if you are made for such a time as this? Like what if you're in that dead end job right now? Because God wants you to reach this one person. God wants you to make a difference in this one person's life. Like, What what if you are married into this family? hopefully you married your spouse for other reasons too but what if you were married into this particular family for that for that one cousin that you're going to see at thanksgiving who's lost and is far from god i mean think about we're about to go into a holiday season right now we're going to see our family like we won't ever for the rest of the year how often do we approach those holidays selfishly like how often do we approach thanksgiving with i hope they fix the thing that i want and I want to watch the game when I want to watch it and and, and we don't realize that maybe there's a divine appointment waiting for you at that table other than that turkey you know what if you were made for such a time as this and I think the problem is is that a lot of us just don't know many lost people like God might be bringing lost people in in, in your path or better yet God might be bringing you in the path of, of lost people but I think that we're just too we're too focused on me to realize the we like, what if, what if the barista that you see on Star, at Starbucks every Monday morning, what, what if you just started a conversation, a dialogue about Jesus with them? Or, or what about the neighbor that you know that, that doesn't go to church? And what, what about if you just slipped them an invite and just started a relationship with them? Like, like, what if the people that God's placed you in their life, what if we saw it as an opportunity to make a difference? And I'll close with this. The story of Esther is, is bigger than, than we think. Because Mordecai and Esther's great, 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 great grandfather was somebody called King Saul. And King Saul was the first king of Israel. And King Saul was given a task. King Saul was given the task to take out the Amalekites, which were the, the Israelites' enemy. So he's given this task to take out the Amalekites, to kill their king, King Agag, and to touch none of their possessions, to take no plunder for themselves. But he chooses to be a little apathetic towards the the call that God's put on his life. He chooses to be just a little bit disobedient. He he lets some of the Amalekites live and and he takes King Agag captive and and he lets the people take some of the possessions. and, And this one act of apathy costs him everything. It costs him the crown, And it cost his family their royal destiny. So Esther and Mordecai were supposed to be of royal descent. But because of one person's apathy, all of that was gone. But that's not all. See, Haman, the villain of our story, his great-great-great-great-great-great-granddad was King Agag. And King Agag was supposed to be taken out by Saul. But because some of the descendants were allowed to live, we get this guy named Haman. And Haman now, because of the apathy of Saul, the whole world is in danger. All the Jewish people are in danger. But isn't God so good? Because he gives Esther the same choice, the same opportunity to make a difference that he gave to Saul. And Esther responds differently. Esther chooses not to let apathy beat her. She, she chooses not to let apathy beat her family. Not, not, not to, she wasn't going to let apathy beat this world. And, and so what does she do? She, she, she takes out Haman. She takes out all of his sons. And and watch this. This This is so crazy. I love how the word of God is. It's just a little verse, and you might miss it if you didn't know all the context of it. It's in Esther 9, verse 5 through 10. It says, So the Jews went ahead to the appointed day and struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa itself, the Jews killed 500 men. They also killed the 10 sons of Haman. But they did not take any plunder. Why is that verse important because because she was not going to repeat the steps of her previous successor like like because of the apathy of Saul her family lost everything but because of Esther because she chose to make a difference and to allow God to make a difference in her life for God to use the fruit that God was producing in her life to make a difference because of that her family her royal family is restored she's she's brought to a place of being the queen and and the people are protected and and everything else is restored to her and and my friends the option is ours today we can either be a King Saul. He wasn't, what he did wasn't that bad. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was just a little apathetic. Or we can be a Queen Esther. And just like Saul and Esther, it'll either cost you everything. It could cost your family everything. It could cost your family their destiny. Or, or you could be a Queen Esther and, and God could use you to elevate your family and the people in your life to a place where you can make a difference and an impact. Let's be Esthers this morning. Let's be Difference Makers this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Just ask the Holy Spirit, what's he saying to you? Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today through this message? Just ask him, is, is there some apathy that snuck into my heart somewhere? Where are you calling me to make a difference that I can't tell the difference? I'm too focused on me. I think all of us today can identify some areas where maybe the Holy Spirit might be nudging us just a little bit. Maybe it's personally, maybe you've stopped growing or maybe it's with your family or maybe God's bringing lost people into your mind right now, people that you rub into and, and rub shoulders with every single day. Whatever he's saying to you today, here's my encouragement. We, here's the two things we do. Here's the response. The first thing we do is we repent we just go, Holy Spirit, so just in your own heart, if that's you, just go, Holy Spirit, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've just been a little bit of ap- apathetic. I'm sorry that I've just allowed a little bit of this apathy to sneak into my life and my heart. And God, today I choose to turn and I choose to be passionate about the things that you're passionate about. Holy Spirit, would you give me the passion? Holy Spirit, would you give us your heart for people today? Would you give us your love for people today? And if you would keep your head bowed and your eyes closed maybe today when I was talking about being secure in our eternity when I was talking about how when we die we know no matter what happens on this earth that we're going to go to heaven maybe you just had that thought in your heart I don't know about me actually I'm not so sure about me I mean I prayed a prayer one time but I don't know about me let's lock that down today Because here's the thing about Jesus is that when we go to Him, we give Him our heart, we give Him our lives. Not everything changes in our life immediately. This is what happens: He 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 takes us up from where we are, and He turns us around. He turns us in an opposite direction, where we go. Jesus, I'm going to chase after You now. So that's you. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or 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 stand up or anything like that. We're just going to all pray this prayer together, and you just pray it in your heart. Everyone, repeat after me: Say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things and the things that I've been about. Lord, we love you so much. I thank you for the cross. Lord, I thank you that you took all of my sin and all of my shame to the cross. Lord, I believe that on the third day, you rose again. And so, Lord, today, I give my life to you. I make you my savior and I make you my Lord. I love you, Jesus.